purposes. And so for this Monday, Thursday, there are many events that we could look to from the Scriptures that happened on this day during Holy Week. Of course, we have the Passover that was at hand and that was celebrated, um, that Jesus turned into the Lord's Supper. Uh, We have uh, the washing of the disciples' feet, uh, his agonizing prayer in the garden that Jesus prayed, his betrayal and arrest, his appearance before the high priest, Peter's denial. Tonight we'll focus in John 18 on the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. We'll, we'll read it, then I want to walk through it with you uh, and make a few comments along the way. And, and as I read in just a few moments, and as we work through this passage together, I want, I want you to especially see how Jesus is in control from beginning to end. He's no victim. This is no tragic set of circumstances that happens to him. He's the sovereign Lord. He's he's in complete control of everything that is happening on this night. Would you stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word? John 18, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, and and by these words, most likely the entirety of of John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, this, this long discourse, all of his teaching during this time, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? May God bless the reading and the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, would you come on this Thursday evening and would you help us to get a a better glimpse of what happened on that Thursday evening, not for the sake of knowledge, but for the sake of knowing our dear Savior, for the sake of seeing his sovereign control that night, his willing obedience that night. 
which secured for us eternal safety and security. Would you be with us in these moments? Would you, through the Holy Spirit, do something special with your word in our hearts? That you might turn our affections toward the Savior just a little bit more in a way that changes us and transforms us from this day forward. We ask this prayer in the name of our, of our beautiful Savior who was stricken and smitten and afflicted for us. Amen. Please be seated. John tells us that he's been selective with the details that he has in his gospel. There's a limited amount of space. He can't include everything. He's left out a lot, and he's included what he has included for a purpose. Here with the betrayal and the arrest, we could go to the other gospel accounts and find out a lot more details. There are things that John left out. He leaves out Judas's kiss. But what he does include really heightens this sense of Jesus' sovereign control over the situation. Start to finish, he's in control. He's ultimately the one calling the shots. Look first at the location that this betrayal happens. Verse 1, the Kidron Valley. Uh, the Kidron is a brook and it's, it's intermittent. Uh, sometimes it'll dry up. Uh, in the rainy season, it'll, it'll rush with water. Right over the Kidron Brook is a slope, the slope of the Mount of Olives, just to the east of this brook. And on that slope is a particular garden, Gethsemane. And this was a frequent location for Jesus to meet with his disciples. This was perhaps the third Passover, the third year of his ministry, and perhaps it was in this garden that they frequently met when they had come to Jerusalem for Passover. Jesus knows that Judas knows how frequent this location is visited. Jesus knows what Judas is up to and what he's about to do. All through God's, John's gospel, we've seen already through some of the chapters that we've been through, Jesus is sovereignly controlling time and circumstance. Right? So frequently we've seen this phrase, my hour has not yet come. Uh, they tried to arrest him, Scripture says, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It, it's fascinating to read on the one hand of their intense desire to arrest him, to capture him, to take him, to kill him. And on the other hand, their inability to do anything about it. That, it says they, they desired to arrest him, yet no one laid a hand on him. It, it's bizarre, these two conflicting ideas. It, it's like they, they're being held back from acting on their desires. Somehow they're being prevented, almost like a force field is around Jesus, and, and they can't get to him. They can't touch him until it's time. Until his hour has come, and that hour being the time for his suffering and his death. 
And that's why Jesus makes himself easy prey on this Thursday night. He hasn't gotten sloppy. He hasn't let his guard down carelessly. No one sneaked up on him. He gave Judas a prime location to carry out his betrayal. Now, this in no way exonerates Judas, but it does ensure that the betrayal takes place according to sovereign plan. Verse 3, they come for him. (laughs) They come for him. And other than cleansing the temple, Jesus has never once exemplified anything that even remotely approaches violence. But they bring a horde of folks armed, ready for a battle, ready for a fight. But as soon as he sees them come, verse 4 says he comes forward. He comes forward. He's not cowering in the shadows. He's not hiding. He comes out and he speaks first. This isn't because he's he's ignorant of what's about to happen. It's not because he's naive. He comes forward. He asks the first question knowing full well. You see that at the beginning of verse 4. He left that night. He headed across the Kidron to this very familiar location where Judas would easily find him. He did that knowing all that would happen. He's knowingly and purposefully setting this chain of events into motion. He knows. He knows he'll be beaten. He knows he'll be scourged, whipped, stripped naked, mocked, spit upon, crowned with thorns, hung on a tree to suffer and bleed and die. Whom do you seek, he asks. Jesus of Nazareth. They're they're probably even mocking his insignificant little hometown. And what does Jesus say? All the English translations have him responding, I am he. If you happen to have the the New American Standard, you'll see that that he is in italics. That means anything you see in the italics in that translation isn't really there. It's just added to smooth out the reading, to keep it from being too awkward. What Jesus very literally says in response to their seeking Jesus of Nazareth, he responds and he says, I am. He's identifying himself, yes, as Jesus of Nazareth, but so much more. This man standing in front of them is the great I am. The God of all creation, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, And it's no wonder that when he says this, they stumble backward and fall down. And I don't think it's out of any respect that they have for him claiming to be the I Am. They they couldn't care less. That, That will be obvious from what they continue to do to him that night. It's not out of respect. 
It's not that they're impressed that he says he's the great I am. It's because he is the great I am that when he speaks, his powerful word is disruptive, even physically to them. They fall down backwards because the words of their creator have that much power. The very legs that they were standing on all of a sudden become useless because the one who created them has spoken. They're arresting him that night not because of any lack of power on his part. They've fallen backward. They're on the ground. They're apparently too dumbstruck to say anything at this point. And so Jesus asks them again, whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I told you already, I am And if it's me you want, let these men go. He's drawing all the attention to himself. He knows these men with him. He knows his poor disciples don't have the strength to endure what he's about to endure. Leave them out of this, he says. And in doing so, in in saying this, John, the gospel writer, understands that Jesus is fulfilling what he spoke earlier. Back in chapter 6, verse 39. That's that's the quote there. I've lost not one of those you've given to me. If you belong to Jesus, you safely belong to him. You're safe in his care. He's the good shepherd. He doesn't lose a single sheep out of his flock. And of course, this safety that Jesus provides that night is, is twofold. He provides for their safety that night that they don't get swept up in Jesus' trial and and the suffering and, and the murder. But he also that night provides for their eternal safety. That he is betrayed and arrested that night means they can belong to him safely forever. But leave it to poor Peter to try to be the hero. This really could have ended very badly. This one dumb move by Peter could have legitimized all these claims that the religious leaders were falsely bringing against Jesus. Calvin, of course, always has something brilliant to say. He says, in this instance, Peter tries to prove with his sword what he will be unable to prove with his tongue. And we know that Peter's bravado will be short-lived. Another of the details that John omits is that Jesus, of course, grabs the ear that Peter has severed and reattaches it miraculously. (laughs) Just one more opportunity that these folks could have said, now, wait a minute. Should we reconsider? He just took a man's ear and stuck it back on. But of course that doesn't happen. And I I think perhaps why John leaves that detail out. It's a fascinating detail, but John leaves it out. And so we've got a straight shot connecting Peter's folly 
of trying to stand in the way of Jesus marching willingly and deliberately toward his death and Jesus' own purpose statement. For why he himself has set these events in motion is because he's got a cup to drink. The Father has given Jesus a cup and asked him to drink it for the sake of his own people. The cup, God's cup, uh, is a symbol used throughout the Bible. Uh, Sometimes it's a cup of blessing that it's referred to many times in the Psalms. Other times, oftentimes, it's the cup of God's wrath. Here are a few examples of, of, of that being spoken about in Scripture. Isaiah 51, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah in in chapter 25 has an extended section about the cup of the Lord's wrath. Part of it says, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. And make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. You see, the cup of the Lord's wrath is his judgment. His just judgment on wickedness and unrighteousness. The psalmist in Psalm 75 says, In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed And he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This is the cup. This is the cup that when Jesus agonized in prayer in the garden, sweating drops of blood as he prayed, this was the cup he was begging the Father to take from him. If there's any other way, Father, if there is any other way to call a people to Yourself and save them, if there is any other way to save these sheep that You have given Me, of whom I've said I've lost none, if there's any other way. But there is none. And we know Jesus obediently submits to the Father's will. And he leaves that time of prayer galvanized. He rises from his knees in the garden that night with a steely resolve. And this is why we see him so willingly take charge of things like he does on that night. He's no victim. He's he's not in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is not a senseless murder. It's not some random act of violence. It was premeditated. And not just by the religious leaders. It was premeditated by God the Father and God the Son together with the Holy Spirit that Jesus would drink the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs Every last drop poured out for him. 
that he might drink the cup that we deserved. And so here's what I want you to remember from the betrayal, from the, from the arrest, from, from this final phrase from Jesus that John records in recounting this event. He drank the cup of wrath so that we might drink the cup of blessing. Right? And that's what we're about to do. Let's pray together. Father, it's easy to understand the the details of this on one level and so hard for them on another level to sink deep down into our hearts. Would you, by your grace, by the working of your Holy Spirit, allow these things that we've observed about Jesus' betrayal and his arrest, would you allow those things to to permeate, to find soft places in our heart that they might soak in, that they might help us to grasp a little deeper, a little more fully, the depth of our Savior's love for us. Something about his willingness, something about the joy that was set before him that led him to endure what he endured. That led him that night to come forward, to speak first, to ask again, to protect the disciples that night, and in protecting them, endangering himself that we might all be safe and secure. Oh, Father, let these truths sink deep into our hearts this night and this week. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to do things a little bit differently tonight, so let me spell them out for you and for me. We will uh, recite the Sursum Corda together in just a moment. And then we'll sing the first verse of, of the Gettys Communion Hymn. As soon as we've sung that verse, the elders will come and they'll distribute the bread. When it's been distributed, we'll sing the second verse and then the cup. And then we'll sing the final two verses together. We'll stand for verses three and four. And when we're done singing, we'll be done for the evening. And uh, ask you to uh, to leave silently after we're done, and um, just take a f- those few extra moments of reflection uh, on our Savior's sacrifice this night. So, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God.
Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain.